Tonight, The Rebel has just published our latest book and it's free to download. We'll tell you all about Sheila's case against David Suzuki. It's June 6th and you're watching The Ezra LeVant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're the biggest carbon Thanks consumer so. I know? There's 8,500 customers here and you won't give them an answer. You come here once a year with a sign and you feel morally superior. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Tomorrow, the University of Alberta will give David Suzuki an honorary degree. That's a disgrace. David Suzuki despises Alberta. He boycotts it. He insults it. He encourages lawbreaking against it. U of A in particular. I'm an alumnus. I went to law school there. It's a government town. Edmonton is. The legislature, the university, the hospitals. But it's also very much an oil patch town. More the blue-collar side of things. And Calgary more has the white-collar side of things. In a way, Edmonton is the staging ground for all of Fort McMurray and the oil sands. One of Edmonton's nicknames is Gateway to the North. Well, the biggest thing going on in the North is the oil sands, and Suzuki despises them. Imagine inviting in such a man to bestow upon him the university's highest honor. And not just at any old time, but right when the debate over the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion is at its apex, when the province so desperately needs a pipeline, when the lack of one is causing a bottleneck that has cost tens of millions of dollars a day, not just to workers, but even to government coffers, too. It's a disaster. It really is like an economic embargo, a blockade on the province. 200,000 unemployed men and women in the oil patch. For them, the U of A has no time. For their tormentor, David Suzuki, the U of A has an honorary degree. There was a backlash against this, some protests, some petitions, donors canceling their money, but the U of A dug in. I mean, if you actually look at the list of other honorary degree recipients this year and every year, Suzuki really isn't an anomaly. They're usually counterculture, far-left social justice warriors. I mean, I think it's just that this time it hit a raw nerve, but the culture on campus at the U of A, as much as every other university in North America, is that of far-left extremism. Professor Jordan Peterson has shown us that. So the U of A dug in. I mean, imagine if they actually had to listen to their constituents, their students, their alumni, their taxpayers. Who knows what could happen if you got started down that road? Well, they held the line. They refused to buckle. They doubled down on David Suzuki. And so tomorrow, well, get ready for the gloating by Suzuki himself and across the country and around the world as the green pieces of the world mock Alberta. I mean, it's almost as nutty as when Albertans voted for an anti-oil NDP government in 2015. That's been a disaster. You'd think the province would have learned its lesson. I think the people have, but not the cosseted cocoon of the ivory tower at U of A. The thing about Suzuki is opposition to him is, is dissident. It's underground because who would dare contradict David Suzuki? No, no one at the largest media company in Canada would. For 40 years, he's been at the CBC. He was their star. So no one at the entire CBC ever criticized him meaningfully. And no one who wanted to work one day at the CBC, which is many other journalists, especially these days when private media companies are collapsing, no one would want to poison their chances to move to the CBC. And no one in politics who bends the knee to the CBC, and that includes too many conservative politicians, no one would criticize Suzuki. So not only has he been, has the CBC been Suzuki's protector, they've been Suzuki's PR machine. 
pumping him out not only over their airways but also into classrooms and popular culture. He's, he's ubiquitous, but he's never been properly vetted, ever. I saw once when he made the mistake of going on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, they actually asked him some tough questions about global warming and they followed up with him several times to rebut his fake answers. It was shocking. It was the only time I've ever seen him being asked tough questions and it is no surprise that it happened overseas where his cult does not have a following in the media. That's the only time I've ever seen it. At all his events, at all his speeches, for which he charges, for which he charges 30,000 bucks a pop, he rarely takes questions, and if he does, they're almost always pre-screened. He reads them from cards or whatnot, nothing unscripted, nothing unplanned, no need for accountability. And so the man is being protected while he lives a double life, a hypocrite, someone who condemns capitalism publicly, but he literally owns five homes. Someone who condemns fossil fuels publicly, but who travels globally nonstop, even has a business deal. He co-owns part of an island with an oil company. Someone who claims to be progressive, but treats young women as sexual objects. None of that has been publicly vetted until now. Our own Sheila Gunn-Reed has published the authoritative guide to Suzuki. It's called The Case Against David Suzuki, the unauthorized biography. It's a quick read, less than 100 pages, but it's meticulously footnoted. So you, you can check all the facts for yourself. And we're giving it away absolutely free as an e-book at suzukibook.com. That's the website. You can go there now and download it. You can, you can chip in a few bucks if you want to voluntarily to help us cover some of our fixed costs like having lawyers vet it first and, and the cover art we had to pay for and whatnot, but the book's free, you can have it. The idea being, have as many people as possible get the truth about Suzuki finally. Do the kind of research that the U of A president didn't do and then refused to do when they were called on it. Sheila will be doing little video excerpts from her book over the next few weeks, but permit me to share with you a few examples of Suzuki's worst conduct. I just shake my head. I mean, Suzuki makes common cause with eco-terrorists who have literally assaulted police in their attempts to stop a pipeline that is important to thousands of Albertans. And the U of A honors him as so disloyal, as so disrespectful of the community of his own students and alumni and donors, it would be like the University of Windsor giving an award to an anti-car activist. But here are a few examples from the book. You really should read the whole thing. Suzuki is against academic freedom that universities are supposed to uphold. A few years back, Suzuki made, uh, Suzuki made a big donation. Uh, he donated two $1,500 scholarships to Carleton University. Come to think of it, that's not a huge donation, but he sure made a big fuss about it. And that's very nice of him, good for him. But then a professor at Carleton gave one of Suzuki's books a bad review. So he punished the students there, who had nothing to do with that review, by yanking the scholarships. Here's what he said. He said, that money comes straight out of my pocket and I can make the choice to stop whenever I want, Suzuki said at the time. If the faculty regards me so poorly, why should I continue to support it? Yeah, so much for academic independence and free speech, the arguments the U of A gave. Here's another thing Suzuki does. He gloats when his enemies have misfortune, and by enemies I mean people who live in Alberta. David Suzuki blamed Albertans for the Fort McMurray wildfires. And then he actually fundraised off their misery, fundraised for himself. Look at that red button in the top right that says donate. While the city was still smoldering, before citizens could even go back to their houses, he was blaming Alberta, demanding that we submit to the UN's global warming schemes. Oh, and look at that bright red donate button, just right. We should donate to his anti-oil sands lobby group, not to the oil sands citizens whose homes were. But imagine inviting 
someone so ghoulish, who thought the Fort McMurray fire was a great time to scold the victims and fundraise for himself. He's written essays saying that it's Mother Earth punishing us. I'm serious, this is a scientist. Or take the Calgary River floods. He's, he's like a religious extremist who thinks that it's God's punishment to Albertans for pumping oil. He couldn't wait to use the floods to denounce the oil patch. Uh, the floods were because of melting snow and rainfall, the opposite of his global warming theory, but he still blamed Albertans. He blamed the victims themselves. Oh, and, and look in the top right corner here, as always. He raised money off of their pain, and he doesn't need to wait for a tragedy to strike. He's a smearer. He literally compares the oil science to slavery. He says the industry is immoral. Really? He's immoral for smearing the people who work there as either slaves or slave masters, but worse, for trivializing what real slavery was. Workers in the oil science are the best paid in Canada. They have a great quality of life, and he's saying slavery wasn't any worse. He's disgusting. Suzuki is really weird when it comes to human beings other than himself. He compares human beings to, to a cancer on the earth. He says we have to cull our population like we're animals or something. Here's what he says. Humans value growth. That's like cancer cells. But that's weird coming from someone who has five children of his own. His own parents were immigrants from Japan. But Suzuki says letting in any other immigrants is, quote, disgusting. Maybe Suzuki just thinks people are disgusting. Here, listen to him compare people to maggots. This is from a few years back, but his message is always the same. He's always comparing people to maggots or bacteria or cancer, implying we're disgusting, we're all disgusting except him. I'm going to play a full minute of this old clip so you see I'm not taking it out of context. The one thing that I've gotten off on lately is that basically, you know, I study fruit flies. And I suddenly realized that basically we're all fruit flies. <laughs> like, you know, you're born as an egg and you live in that egg environment and your parents kind of cut out all the external crap that comes in and protect you and nourish you and clothe you and all that. It's a very nice little egg and it's comfortable. But at some point you hatch out and start crawling around and eating stuff on your own. You start reading, you start looking at the tube, you start doing all sorts of things. You hatch out as a maggot. And a maggot, a maggot can now crawl around. It's got two dimensions, and it can ingest food at its will, and it defecates all over the environment. And some other smaller maggots can even eat your defecation and get some nourishment out of it. And, uh, you know, you, you grow as you eat more nourishment, and you molt. You become a second-level maggot, you know, a bigger maggot. It even looks different. And the bigger you get, the more people you can, or more maggots you can crush with your weight. World overrun. Yeah, I mean, most people in the world are content to stay as first or second-level maggots, and they establish their own little area and they they crawl around there, and that's fine. And the the guys that become tenth-level maggots are really big wheels. What a gross, gross man. Except, of course, he's a 10th level maggot now himself by his own definition. As I mentioned before, he condemns capitalism, including that of the oil sands, but he's the biggest hypocrite around. He owns four, hum, uh, four homes in British Columbia. His main home on Point Grey Road is assessed by the city of Vancouver at $15.3 million. Now, I'm not against being extremely wealthy. I am just against him trashing our right to make a living while he bashes oil companies and lives in a 15 point 
three, four, eight million dollar house. I've shared a few facts with you about David Suzuki, but there are literally 140 fully footnoted facts in Shuda's new book. It's free, it's a quick read, so when you're done watching the show tonight, why not head on over to suzukibook.com and download a copy. You can read it on your Kindle or other ebook reader or just download it as a PDF document. You can even read it on your cell phone. The U of A betrayed its community and all of us. The CBC has betrayed the country for half a century by covering for Suzuki. Finally, Sheila Gunn-Reed unveils the truth about Suzuki. And of course, you'll only find it at The Rebel. Visit suzukibook.com. An interview with Sheila is up next. Welcome back. Well, tomorrow, the University of Alberta, of which I am an alumnus, I might add, well, tomorrow they murder their own reputation by honoring a dishonorable man, David Suzuki. I say he's dishonorable not as an insult, but rather as an observation for his life's work slandering the oil patch, industry, capitalism, and in particular, Alberta and its central industry, oil and gas, especially the oil sands. What an outrage that the U of A has decided to give him that honor mere weeks after Suzuki joined in the anti-pipeline protests that were being held to block the Kinder Morgan expansion. Imagine thinking that such a man is honorable. Imagine thinking that you would bestow the reputation of U of A on top of him. Well, the president of the University of Alberta has dug in his heels. It's cost the university millions of dollars in lost donations. But there's one piece of the puzzle missing, and that is a comprehensive one-stop shop for the facts about David Suzuki. Because plainly put, for the last 50 years, he's been protected, protected by the CBC with whom he's been their star. And so there's been no scrutiny of Suzuki and his misconduct for years. Well, that stops now, I'm delighted to announce that Sheila Gunn-Reed, our Alberta bureau chief and the best-selling author of The Destroyers, the number one Amazon.ca book about Rachel Notley's NDP, well, she has a new book out called The Case Against David Suzuki, an unauthorized biography, 140 footnotes meticulously researched. And here to tell us about it, that is Sheila Gunn-Reed herself. Sheila, congratulations. I have no doubt that this will become a best-selling book just like The Destroyers was. Well, I hope so, because for the same reason that we wrote The Destroyers, um, we wrote this book. And it's because I, I think if everybody knew all the facts that they could know about David Suzuki, he wouldn't be treated as the prophet that he is. And I think people would actually resent the CBC probably more than they already do for treating him like an oracle or an expert on anything. Hmm. You know, that's the thing. Decades ago, David Suzuki really was a scientist. He did research into fruit fly genetics. That's his area of expertise. But it has been years since he's done anything remotely science -y. no research, no experiments. Uh, what he does instead is propagandize 
Um, but be, just like Bill Nye, the science guy, he's got a rep as being super smart. In fact, he's sort of a junk scientist for hire. He's really about wringing out money from anyone who he can, whether it's you know gullible grannies chipping into his David Suzuki Foundation, or the big ticket money charging 30 grand a speech almost always to some government institution uh, that sloshes it around. Yeah, you know, he's got a long history of making junk science claims. I think one uh, that we made note of in the book is one time he said that 90% of all cancers are caused by environmental factors. And he, then he went on to cite such ridiculous quackery about GMOs and pesticides and fertilizers, you know, all the things that farmers use to make food more affordable to the poor. When, you know, an easily researched uh, fact would you know, would totally turn uh, Suzuki's so-called made-up facts into lies. Uh, the U.S. National Cancer Institute says between 4 and 19% of cancers are related to environmental factors. But th this is just the story of Suzuki's life. It's just he says one thing to suit his agenda when it doesn't meet the truth. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand the idea that sometimes a controversial person can be given an honorary degree. But um, I read the U of A's policies on honorary degrees, and they have to represent the best of the university spirit. And, and David Suzuki, I just want to, and the president of U of A, uh, Turpin is his name, has said, oh, this is about academic freedom and scholarship. There is no freedom or scholarship here. Suzuki's not giving a lecture and then taking questions from students. This is not a two-sided debate. This is bestowing an honor on him. This is not a classroom exercise. He's not a student or a faculty member. But the, when you inspect Suzuki's own treatment of academic freedom, he's a brute. I mean, there was this one story in your book about how Suzuki had generously given a scholarship to a university for students, and that's great, good for him. But when some professor at that university didn't review one of Suzuki's books friendly enough, Suzuki took his money away from the kids and went home and said, it's my money, I can do with what I want. How can you give such an abuser like, oh, no, I, you only get scholarship money if you praise me. Otherwise, I'm going to defund your poor kids. How can you give that guy an honorary degree? That's gross. Well, and it, it's pretty ironic to hear from someplace like the University of Alberta now championing uh, academic debate and uh, liberal discourse of ideas when, you know, they have a long history of censoring pro-life groups or using punitive fees to censor pro-life groups on campus. I mean, David Suzuki, he'll say one thing one place and a completely different thing another place. For example, he went to Australia and told the Australians that Stephen Harper was going to arrest him um, under Bill C-51 because um, uh, because Stephen Harper doesn't like environmental activists and environmental radicals. And then when he's back here, he's telling people that uh, we should be locking up climate change deniers or charging them with uh, criminal negligence just because people want a rigorous debate around the science of climate change. Hmm. You know, um, th there's a story in your book, and I remember talking about it at Sun News, uh, but it has been so exquisitely ignored by the mainstream media. And I put it to you, if it was a 
pro-oil or a conservative activist who had done this rather than Suzuki. It would have been the last we ever heard of them. Uh, there's this, there's this uh, junior college in Quebec called uh, John Abbott College. And for some reason, they thought it would be worth spending $30,000 on bringing in David Suzuki to talk for a bit. Um, I, guess, uh, I guess they have to justify their high tuition somehow. Um, and it was really creepy in the emails. You refer to the emails in the book. Suzuki's staff, a female assistant, called up John Abbott College and said, Suzuki prefers female ladies or lady females. Uh, as his entourage, and he specifically requested only women be his entourage, and they had to dress a certain way, and the school, instead of saying you are a gross, dirty old man, they said sure, and in fact, the email chain that came about, they were inspecting the girls, telling them what to dress, girls don't wear a beautiful cocktail dress, but dress this way and that, and, and one of the staffers at, uh, at this university, actually, or this college, actually visually inspected the girls. In the era of Me Too, I'm not saying David Suzuki raped anyone. I, I'm not saying that at all. But just to be a creepy old man. And imagine the enablers around him, his female assistant and the female staff at John Abbott College helping this dirty old man get an all-female retinue um, how does he even exist in the age, of, in the post Me Too age? I'm not saying, I'm not comparing him to Weinstein, who I think was a rapist, but I'm comparing him to a man who treats women like adornments for his awesomeness. It's gross. That story is even creepier when you drill down a little deeper on the details. So you did say that it was a junior college, which is true, but I think in English Canada, we don't really understand what a junior college is. The people who attend junior colleges are roughly between 17 and 19 years old. So these are very young girls, teenagers, and he was 77 at the time, insisting that he be able to vet their outfits. And when, you know, somebody asked, well, why does he want girls? And he basically said, well, because I'm a 77-year-old guy. I mean, it's just gross. There's this overarching theme, too, with David Suzuki, where he loves to talk about sex to the point where it's a little bit creepy, at least for me, and I think for a lot of normal people, he wrote at one point that he liked to talk or he liked to think about sex once every minute. But now that age is creeping up on him, it's like once every five minutes. And this is something he just says out in public, but he seems to be getting a pass from the mainstream media and particularly the CBC because they've created him to be this sort of grandfatherly leftist Canadian icon. Yeah. Uh, in his book, in, in his own autobiography, he talks about uh, his views about his daughters having sex. Um, and again, I'm not implying anything illegal or any misconduct with him. I just think no. if you're boasting or talking or publicizing the, cons the, the topic of sex and your own children, um, you're a creepy old man. You are a creepy old man, and I put it to you again, uh, maybe the CBC tolerates people like that. I mean, Jean Gameshi, they tolerated him, and he did much worse. Jean Gameshi actually hit women. I, again, I'm not accusing Suzuki of doing that, but he's just a creepy old perv, but because he's a leftist, he gets away with it. You know, it's a, it's a great book. It's a quick read, 140 footnotes, very meticulously researched. Um, and what's so exciting, Sheila, is it's available for free. We're just giving it away to anyone for a download on Suzuki Book 
Suzukibook.com. Suzukibook.com. I think it's going to fly off the shelves. I mean, it's free, but I think people are going to actually read it. Well, you know, I hope they do. I think it's a necessary read. Um, it's especially revealing about, you know, what sort of monsters we are allowing the CBC to create um, and then provide cover for, for decades and decades and decades. Um, and like you said, if people do want to um, download the book, it's available for free at suzukibook.com. And if they'd like to help out to cover the cost of creating this book and running it past the lawyer's eyes, they can donate there too at suzukibook.com. That's a good point. I mean, it is for free, but if folks really like it, they can chip in five bucks, 10 bucks, even more. I, we haven't got the lawyer's bill yet, but obviously this thing was, every single sentence was reviewed because Suzuki has boasted about wanting to put his opponents in jail. Obviously, we don't want to give him any legal ability to do that. Sheila, I'm delighted you're doing this. Thank you for fighting back. Uh, your last book, The Destroyers, went to number one uh, in, on the Canadian bestseller list, and I think this will too. We're giving it away for free. Uh, we will eventually make it for sale in a paperback version for those who prefer, but we want to really, really push the freebie, freebie, freebie. Um, and why not? It's a great read. It's a quick read. Um, took me, you know, it's only about a little more than an hour to read it. I was reading it very carefully. So it's not, you're not you don't have to say, oh, I got to set aside a half a day. It's a quick read. But all the facts there, you can't read that book without coming away thinking, what the heck was U of A thinking? And what has the CBC perpetrated against us for almost 50 years? Last word to you, Sheila. It's a great book. It's a short book. Grab a beer, grab a lawn chair, and educate yourself. There you go. Will do. That sounds like a, that sounds like a good way to pass the time. Suzukibook.com. Sheila, keep up the fight. Great. Thanks, Ezra. All right. Thank you. Well, I'm proud of this book. Uh, we've published, I think, four books at The Rebel now. Uh, the first one was uh, Sheila's book, The Destroyers, went to number one on Amazon.ca. Then we published a book by uh, Lauren Southern called Barbarians. That went to number one on Amazon.ca. My book was the third book. It was called Trumping Trudeau. That only went to number two on the bestseller list. And now here we have our fourth book. The Case Against Suzuki, an unauthorized biography. Check it out. It's free. And uh, tell your friends. All right, stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Welcome back. Well, for our Ontario viewers, tomorrow is Election Day. Can you believe it? It's amazing how much has happened in the last few months. Earlier this year, Patrick Brown was on cruise control, uh, a red Tory who supported the carbon tax and uh, had flip-flopped on so many issues. He was defenestrated. That's my favorite fancy word. It means being thrown out the window. The party had a lightning-quick leadership race. Doug Ford surprised people by winning. And now it looks like he may well be the next premier. Tough to say, though. Polls show it's pretty close. I see some showing that uh, the NDP and the Tories are neck and neck. Kathleen Wynne did something very strange. She said, well, yeah, I don't think I'm going to win, but vote for the Liberals anyways. I don't know what that will do. If that will move people to the Liberals, away from the Liberals, who knows? But what's so fascinating about this campaign to me is how insane some of the NDP candidates are. And even though they've been vetted by the media, that's just fine as far as I know. And our next guest will correct me if I'm wrong. 
despite insane public statements being made by the NDP candidates that are utterly disqualifying, at least in a moral uh, way, as if not a legal way, I wouldn't say they're disqualifying in a legal way, the NDP is proceeding with its motley crew of kooks. We now are joined by Candace Malcolm. Her article in the Toronto Sun is, Beware, today's NDP is more radical than ever. That ain't no lie. Candace. I don't know where they found these folks, but there are some doozies. Tell me some of the, tell me about some of the, you list them in your article. I, I don't think any of them break the law, but they're pretty bloody insane. Give me a few examples. Well, sure, Ezra. So everyone knows that the NDP tend to be hard left on economic issues, but the new NDP and the new left uh, really takes on this sort of identity politics brand. And that's what my article was about. So, you know, we had someone um, saying that the black Toronto police chief should win something called a Coon Award. Um, we have, uh, you Let know, me just, stop just you there. Kind of Let me pause you there. Just, I mean, that, that's an obscure racial epithet. It's almost as bad as the N word. Because the, the, the chief of police is black, calling him the C word, C-O-O-N, I don't even want to say that. that, that is, that's like calling a Jew a K-I-K-E or, or, it's, or using the N word for black. It, that is insane that she got away with that. And she's still a candidate, right? Right. Well, and, and that's the thing, you know, there's a whole bunch of, of these kind of comments like uh, saying that gun nuts should be droned and, and bombed. Um, one candidate said that. Another one compared Canada's uh, troops and our soldiers in Afghanistan to war criminals. That same candidate posted a meme of Adolf Hitler on her Facebook page, uh, although she claims that her Facebook page was hacked and that it wasn't her. Yeah, I mean, I mean this is just a couple of, <laughs> just I'm a couple sorry, of examples of how... I apologize for interrupting. I just can't even stay quiet. The idea that she would publish a Hitler meme and get away with it by saying, oh, some, someone must have hacked my Facebook account, put the Hitler meme, and I just sort of kept it up there for years. But I swear it was those evil Hitler meme hackers. I mean, the fact that that excuse was bought and accepted, Candace, I'm sorry, let me be quiet and, and you keep going. I just can't stay still, though, with these <laughs> insane stories. Keep going. There's, there's more. What about Guratan Singh, the, the brother of uh, Jagmeet Singh? He's quite a character, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. He, he held up a sign saying F. F, he's, he actually said the F word, uh, the police, and he was holding it up at a rally, um, you know, very openly with his face, uh, you know, very recognizable guy, the brother of the uh, federal leader, the NDP, you know, so so, so the, this is the kind of uh, the people that the NDP has recruited. Uh, they're completely unvetted from a professional standpoint, the kind of people that you probably wouldn't even hire uh, for a job because you wouldn't want that kind of toxic environment around you. You know, these are these are just examples, Ezra, but really, it, it does show the, the mindset, um, not only of the individual people who get uh, attracted to the sort of radical left and the far left, which the NDP Ontario really is, uh, but the mindset of the party that, you know, these kind of things are okay, that, that, that these candidates didn't get fired. Um, Andrew Horvath, the leader, actually defended them, saying that, you know, people do radical things when they want change and, and that a lot of people are critical of war. And so, therefore, 
comparing Canadian soldiers to war criminals is somehow, uh, you know, just just fair game for for being critical of war. There's also a 9/11 truther among oh the pack. Uh, there's a, a woman who wrote a, a, a handbook for radicals about how to sort of break the law and do these um, these economic protests where they uh, destroy private property and all this kind of stuff. You know, when, when you think about Antifa and the far left and the crazy things that they do, these are actually this is the base and these are the people who will be representing Ontario if they go ahead and vote uh, for the NDP tomorrow. You know, it reminds me of some of the kooks in Alberta who were swept ashore uh, by the high tide. Uh, when they signed up, they had no chance and they were just putting their name there. And, it, it, you know, the things that were washed up on the beach were shocking. But I think that the Ontario NDP was never as fringe as Alberta's was. And some of these candidates are fairly well known. I mean, the, the, some of the kooks who were elected in Alberta literally just were students who, at a student club, put their name down, um, had, you know, didn't even campaign, thought it was a joke. In Ontario, I think they were always contenders, which I think makes it more serious. I want to go back to Jagmeet Singh's brother. Jagmeet Singh is the lead, leader of the federal NDP. His brother, Guratan, is a candidate for the provincial NDP. So he's not a nobody. He's not a, like, he's, he's fairly well known. We're going to show the picture now of that sign. If someone is standing right next to a cop with a big sign in public that says F-U-C-K, the police, how can that person be a lawmaker? I mean, <laughs> what's he going to be, the attorney general or the solicitor general? Is he going to be in charge of the Ontario Provincial Police? How could you, if someone, when you say F the police, you're basically saying F the law, F the rule of law. How can such a person then seek to be a lawmaker? I, how? how? I don't know. Maybe I'm asking into the wind. I don't understand. Well, it's, it's a good question, and you're right. You know, one of the other found fundamental uh, things that the far left believes in is that Canada itself is somehow a racist, uh, sexist, bigoted uh, country based on genocide and imperialism and all these other things that they say. Uh, and it really does show a fundamental hatred for Canada and our way of life and our values. And to see a person really just kind of embodying that, holding up that sign, saying all that, you know, that the police don't even have, you know, possibly the, the authority to do what they're doing, um, and a complete disregard, as you said, for the rule of law. It's concerning. Yeah, I remember your uh, journalist, Sheila Gunn-Reed, did a great job digging up all that information about those crazy NDP candidates in Alberta. The same thing happened, Ezra, in 2011, uh, federally, when um, the NDP had this sort of orange wave and a bunch of people got elected, especially in Quebec. You know, some of them weren't even, didn't even speak French or weren't even from the riding or the area or, or Quebec. And, and they were all of a sudden federal lawmakers. I think it's part of the concern in Canada when we have kind of a protest vote in Ontario, people are angry at Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals who have completely destroyed the province through their reckless policies. I don't blame people for being frustrated, but you know, to, to go to a protest vote and, and vote for a party that really has no business uh, being in those kinds of positions, people who haven't been you know, screened, that they haven't been scrutinized the way that other mainstream politicians have been, we could wake up to some pretty scary, frightening new leaders and new lawmakers in the province of Ontario on Friday if people go ahead and vote with this impulse to do a, you know, a protest vote against the Liberals. Yeah. 
it's, it's terrifying. At the very least, I think it's safe to say the NDP is going to be the opposition in Ontario, I think. I mean, listen, you never know what's going to happen, but that's what the poll suggests to me. Let me, let me isolate one of the examples. You gave so many crazy examples there, and I recommend the column, folks. And, and by the way, we're talking about Ontario, but don't think what happens on Ontario doesn't affect the rest of the country. Of course it does. If Ontario votes in Doug Ford, for whatever his flaws are, I think we'll have a bulwark against Justin Trudeau, especially on the carbon tax. If Ontario, God forbid, votes in Andrew Horvath and the NDP, that will accelerate Trudeau's lurch to the left. That's terrifying. So this is, this is of national importance, as I think Alberta elections and BC elections are too. But Candace, let me zero in on one of the craziest examples. You, you mentioned it, we talked about it a bit, I couldn't even sit in my chair when you said it, that Taslim Riaz, um, compared Canadian soldiers in Afghanistan to war criminals and posted praise to Adolf Hitler. And, and <laughs> excuse someone hacked my Facebook. But Candace, here's my question. I mean, I'm Jewish, so I'm sensitive to people who love Hitler. I mean, Hitler wanted to kill the Jews, and he tried. Um, and I hear, all, I hear all the time about the neo-Nazi movement and alt-right movement, which I think is very small and very obscure and actually quite powerless. But boy, the media sure loves to, to fearmonger about the threat from the right. All right, so here we have an actual case of someone posting Adolf Hitler content on their Facebook. And this isn't some basement-dwelling, nobody, you know, internet loser. This is a candidate for the legislature, the provincial parliament of Ontario. And her excuse, I was hacked, is so laughable that her party forgives her, though, and the media forgives her. If this was an alt-right conservative who had a Hitler meme, he would have been gone in one minute. And we would have had lectures for the rest of the campaign about the neo-Nazi threat. By the way, I'm against neo-Nazis. I just think they're extremely rare uh, in nature. They certainly live in the minds of the media. Here you have an actual neo-Nazi meme. And the media shrugs because it's a, a, a leftist. Help me out with that one, Candace. Help me square that circle. Well, it, yeah, you know, it's interesting because we talk a lot about how identity politics is coming and how it's coming from the university campuses and, and spreading throughout society. I think this Ontario election has shown us how it's already here, that people who um, are themselves minorities kind of get a pass from the media and from uh, the mainstream. They don't get the same kind of scrutiny. So, you know, because uh, this woman, you know, if, if this woman was white, she probably would have gotten a lot more scrutiny. If she was on the right, certainly she would have gotten that kind of scrutiny. But we kind of have this weird uh, lower expectations and cultural relativism when it comes uh, to newcomers, unfortunately. And we saw this example play out. There was a PC candidate named Tanya Granick uh, Allen who uh, ran for leader and lost. And as soon as she became a candidate for Doug Ford, the media dug up a bunch of uh, comments that she had made uh, that were sort of uh, anti-gay or anti-Muslim. And she was, uh, the, the, you know, the scrutiny was so harsh that she was fired, that the PCs fired her and, and pushed her out. Um, you know, I don't agree with what Kenya was saying, but, you know, she, that you, you could see the double standard that, that she got pushed out for 
comments that were politically incorrect, but they weren't anywhere near the extent to which these left-wing um, co uh, comments were. And so definitely a double standard, definitely identity politics already here in the double standard of the media and its scrutiny. And you're absolutely right. There'd be no tolerance uh, for any of this on the right. And, and I would agree with that. I would say we shouldn't have tolerance for on the right, but we also shouldn't have tolerance for someone who praises Adolf Hitler um, and someone who calls Canadians war criminals. We shouldn't have tolerance tolerance for that, either Ezra, sorry. And I think that it shows unfortunate state uh, of our media and of our civil society right now that we somehow uh, allow people like this to run for the high, uh, for public office. Yeah, it's terrifying. You know what, I think the Conservatives will win tomorrow, I may uh, eat my words, but the fact that they were so competitive with this um, loot bag of kooks is uh, troubling. and. Um, I think the NDP doesn't seem willing to clean its house. The media won't do it for them. I think that's a troubling state of affairs. Candace, it's great to see you again. Thanks for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, there you have it, Candace Malcolm. The column is called Beware. Today's NDP is more radical than ever. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Welcome back on my monologue last night, James writes, soon to be announced, women in burkas only allowed in pageant. That way we won't know who the hell wins the award and no one's feelings will be hurt. Well, it uh, wouldn't surprise me one bit. Uh, I think more likely is to have men in Miss Canada who uh, are transgender. Ted writes, Oh, Ezra, you kidder, you have a chance at winning the Miss America contest, as if the war on sanity were the only consideration. Sure, if it were, you would be Miss America this year for sure, but aren't you forgetting something? You're a conservative dude. You have about as much chance to be treated equally as Canada has to be a free, civilized, terror-free country in 2025 with socks clown as PM. Sorry, not happening. <laughs> yeah, look, um, I, I think I have more cards in politically correct poker to play be, than some people because I'm Jewish and that still gives you a little bit of a Trump card, but not much. Um, I, I think that frankly, um, we're so far gone in the political correct hierarchy, the politically correct poker game. I don't know if you saw my interview with Andrew Clavin the other day. I asked him who's gonna win the battle, the transgender man or the Muslim woman in that Windsor aesthetic salon. And, uh, frankly, I'm betting on the Muslim woman. Uh, on the Ontario election, Paul writes, no matter which poll you look at, it looks like the Ontario Liberals are in danger of losing official party status. Wynne is warning about the dangers of a majority government. Just look at the damage the Liberals have done with their majorities. She forgot to mention that, of course. The sister of Patrick Brown works at the law firm that is suing Doug Ford, kind of suspicious, if you ask me. I saw that, um, <clears throat> and it is eyebrow raising, that's for sure, that Patrick Brown's sister is at the law firm that's suing Doug Ford, but the, but the firm is fairly big and I, I wouldn't read too much into that. I mean, there's lawyers, lawyers are everywhere in politics and they're all with some firm and some of these firms are quite large and they have Liberal and Tory and even some NDPers. So yes, it is curious and it would be worth a follow up, but I'm not gonna call it a conspiracy theory. Look, the lawsuit will be heard. Um, obviously the family is having a rift over this and one side's right and one side's wrong or maybe they're both half right. Uh, I actually don't think that's gonna be an election issue to move the, the vote for a lot of people. 
That's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, good night and keep fighting for freedom.